All right, well, some messages tend to be a little bit longer and some tend to be shorter. The last couple of weeks, I've preached longer messages. This week is going to be a little bit shorter because Jesus knew something about the educational system long before we started having fancy words to describe these things. I regularly talk to their parents uh, about the different ways and methods that their child learns. This is something that I never heard of when I grew up. You learned one way. You got a homework assignment and you did it or you didn't do it. That was your learning method. But apparently um, we're more complicated than that. And there are various ways to learn. And you hear that some are visual learners, some are good memorizers, some are more of a kinesthetic, tactile kind of learning method. Well, Jesus anticipated that. So he gave us a lot of different opportunities to be able to understand and to learn his precious gospel. There's the straightforward reading of his word, which is why we've added a more liturgical kind of response and read back element to our services. Because Paul even instructed that to Timothy, that until I come, when you gather, pay close attention to the public reading of scriptures. There's the sitting under the explanation of the word. We saw that last week when the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the Isaiah scroll and he says, how am I supposed to understand this unless somebody was to break it down to me and help me understand it. There's those times where the Spirit just speaks directly into somebody's life, either via through His Word or through conviction of sin, but the Spirit does a direct work on somebody's life. There's also song, and don't underestimate song in terms of the powerful ability to be able to teach gospel theological truths. I mean, think about this. This is a song that you guys probably all know. It's a Christmas song, and maybe you never even thought about how rich the theology is that you're singing when you sing this song. But Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail incarnate deity, pleased with us with flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Do you believe how much theology was in that simple stanza I just read? You read about the Immaculate Conception. You read about the virgin birth. You read about how Jesus had the hypostatic union of both God and man, that he was pleased to be able to dwell with us because of his atoning death over our sins. And that's all in one stanza of a Christmas song. So that's one way that we teach. Also, Jesus involves the senses in demonstrating different ways to teach the gospel. And we're going to see that today. Like communion. In communion, he invites a multi-sensory perception. We are actually able to do like it says in the Psalms and taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And we are able to actually use those elements as we partake of the bread. We partake of the juice and remember the body that was broken 
for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood that was poured out for the remission of sin. And he also gives us a visual reminder through baptism. And baptism is a picture of the uh, a visual reminder of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And how he takes and he applies that atoning death to our account and makes his righteousness our own while taking our unrighteousness and putting it upon himself. And we intend to use all of those creative areas to celebrate the gospel this morning. And we invite you to celebrate along with us. One of the ways that we have that we learn here is something that we call PLI. It's our Pastors and Leadership Institute. We have a lot of initials and abbreviations for stuff around here. I don't know why I do that. It's to make things easier to remember, but it usually makes it just more confusing. But we pay close attention in PLI to these two areas, biblical theology and hermeneutics. Before you think we're going to start going over your head here, biblical theology is simply the belief that this book is not a bunch of random put together stories. That there are certain themes that hold the entire book together, like the story of redemption is seen from cover to cover in this book. And there's other thematic stories that are shared over and over because the author is not just trying to tell a story, the author is conveying the story. And hermeneutics is just a fancy word for using proper methods for the interpretation of Scripture, where we interpret the passage in its context, try to understand what it is that the author was trying to to get out of that passage rather than reading at it and saying, well, this is what the passage means to me. What does the passage means to you? That's not proper hermeneutics. The author intended for the passage to mean something when he wrote it. We do not tell the Bible what it means. We come under the Bible and it tells us how to know God, how to relate to God, and how to live for God and share that love with other people. So why am I sharing all of this stuff with you? Because when you understand what biblical theology is about, then you start to understand a little bit of hermeneutics, then you can do really cool things like understand that chapter 8, 9, and 10 in the book of Acts are essentially the same chapter just written three different perspectives and written a little bit differently, but retelling the same story from three different angles with different participants to drive home the same points. They're all the same story. I mean, think about it. In each of these stories, you have an unlikely person getting saved. And in each passage, the person becomes a little bit more of an unlikely candidate for salvation from our limited earthly perspective. In each of these stories, you have an unlikely person being used by the Lord to be the vehicle to share the message of salvation. And in each of these passages, it becomes a more and more unlikely vehicle. You have in each of these passages the different degrees of unbelievability, which is moving us to the big point that all salvations are miraculous. Do we come here believing that this morning, that all salvations are miraculous? That there are no degrees of miraculousness, and there should be no story that is any more or less unbelievable if we really understand that a good story 
is a story about what Christ and what Christ has done, not how bad we were before we came to know Jesus. And in each of the story, you see that the person being saved ended up being really important to be used by God to move forward his mission for the church. So the big idea of the passage that we're looking at this morning is that there is nothing that can stop the work of God from moving forward. And the more that people have tried to contain it, the more that it has spread throughout the history of the church. And we're going to show you examples both in the Bible and in history. And a similar thought, there's no such thing as a person who is difficult to save or any person who is more difficult to use by God than anyone else. We cannot stop a work of God from expanding. Somebody cannot stop God from working in their life. And we cannot mess up so bad that we are beyond being used by or saved by our gracious Heavenly Father. That's what we see here in chapter 9. So here this morning is just this grateful, grateful passage that you cannot out-sin. You cannot outrun the love of God when He has set His sights on you. Amen? Amen. So the passage starts out in a very similar way to chapter 7, the way that chapter 8 ended, and now the way that chapter 9 is beginning. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters of the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and the way was just a nickname for Christians at that time, so if he found any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound, meaning arrest them, and bring them to Jerusalem. So as the, as the passage begins, Saul is trying everything in his power to stop the work of God from going forth through the evangel, the telling of the gospel throughout the church. So just like you had the council trying to grab the apostles and say, okay, we get that you were going and preaching this good news about Jesus. It's time to shut up. It's time to stop it. Guess what? God won. And just like they do after arresting the apostles in chapter 5 and say, we're going to arrest you, we're going to beat you, and then we'll release you. But guess what? No more sharing about this good news of Jesus. Guess what? God won. Just like when they arrest and martyr Stephen in chapters 6 and 7 and they kill them before their very eyes. Guess what? Guess who won again? God won. And as you read in the beginning of chapter 8, it says Saul was ravaging the church. Guess what happened? The church grew bigger and bigger by the day as Saul was ravaging it, and God won. And then you have in this chapter, beginning with Saul was breathing threats and murders, and even had documents from the highest religious figures. And guess what happens in this passage? Come on, you should know by now. God wins. And this should be an encouragement to us. Ignorance cannot stop the outward movement of the gospel. Threats cannot stop the outward movement of the gospel. Persecution 
cannot stop the outward movement of the gospel. If you want to read about some of the greatest persecution going on in the world, look at northern Sudan, which is almost 100% radical Muslim, and look at southern Sudan, which is becoming more and more Christian by the day under the threat of great persecution. But guess what? God is winning because even Islam is not enough to stop the gospel. Religion cannot stop the spread of the gospel. You see it right here in this passage that Saul went to the highest religious figures on the face of the earth and said, give me papers so that I could go in and arrest these people. Religion can't stop the gospel. And those in ruling authority, no matter how wicked their heart may be, cannot stop the spread of the gospel because the gospel is way bigger and way more powerful than me, you, or they think that it possibly could be. Look, we live in an age where the PC police try to tell you what it's okay to say and not say, especially in public settings. So this gospel of the proclamation of sin and death and the worthiness of wrath of all those who have sinned against a holy God and that we're born depraved and in need of the salvation that only Christ could bring and that Christ has certain things to say about human sexuality, human dignity, the creation of human beings. We live in an age where the political police try to tell you to shut your mouth about that, that it has no belonging in the public sector. Guess what? The gospel's bigger than the PC police. We live in an age where people think that they can keep Christ out of certain public sectors. And it seems that that liberty is being further infringed upon daily. Guess what? The gospel is going to win. They might think that they're mighty to stop, but we're going to see in a couple of minutes that regardless of how big they think they are in being mighty to stop, that Jesus Christ is even bigger in being mighty to save. That is what this passage shows us. And I hope that gets you guys excited. Look, what Saul did here in this passage that you saw in verses 1 and 2 has been repeated so many times throughout the history of the Roman, uh, through, throughout the history of the church. The Roman Empire tried to stop the gospel from going forth. They couldn't do it. The anti-Reformation crowd thought from the 1300s to the 1500s that they could stand in the opposition of the gospel. They couldn't do it. Men like Voltaire and Nietzsche who tried to proclaim God dead in order to make the gospel sound like a fairy tale thought that they could stop the proclamation of the gospel. And guess what? The gospel live on while Nietzsche is dead. Islam has tried to stop the spread of the gospel. And guess what? The church is springing up in unprecedented numbers right under their noses, whether they know it or not. If you want something to encourage your global worldview, go and see what the gospel is doing in the nation of Islam. Turn off the news for a second and go and read Voice of the Martyrs 
and see what the gospel is doing in the nation of Islam. They can't stop it either. Modern liberal arts education that is set up in so many ways to train our students when we send them off to be anti-gospel in their thinking. Guess what? They can't stop the spread and the proclamation of the gospel either. So that should give us great freedom as we look at and engage this current political climate. None of you should watch the debates and be filled with fear because our God reigns. Our God is supreme. No matter who is elected, guess what? God wins. That's cover to cover in the Bible. Regardless of what your political persuasions are, the gospel wins. That's cover to cover in the Bible. No matter how off-base you think a certain policy is, it can't be more off-base than having your religious leaders write policy saying, go and find and sniff out each Christian and bound them by shackles and bring them back to Jerusalem. There is no policy that's as off-base as that. And guess what? The gospel still wins. There is nothing that can be spread that will be off base enough to stop the eternal proclamation of the gospel. But a funny thing happened to Saul on his way to wipe out the church. Look at verses 3-9. through It says, Now as he went off on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So that led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, this funny thing that happened was that big, bad, mean old Saul found out something that many of us have found out along the way when we thought that we were bigger than God and that is that our God is mighty to save even if we're not looking for him to be so. No matter how strong our will is, his love is stronger. No matter how much our heart wants to resist, his ability to pursue you is stronger. No matter how hopeless your situation looks, the hope that we have in and through Jesus Christ is stronger. Look, some of us, I'm just going to put it frank, some of us need to get knocked off our high horse. You ever wonder where that phrase came from? I can't prove it, but it, we at least have a 2,000 year old occurrence of that phrase right here. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. He's riding along, and the Holy Spirit says, <clears throat> think again. That's the Eric Lawyer translation. It's exact in the Greek, if you want to check it out. So Saul thought his life was supposed to be going in one direction, and God came in with a slice of humble pie and said, get off your high horse, son. You've got a different direction coming about today. How many of you are grateful today 
This isn't rhetorical. How many of you are grateful today that God was big enough to knock you off your high horse? How many of you were headed in one direction and God grabbed a hold of you and said, I don't think so, not today, buddy. You're going to be mine. And I still remember just being in a club, doing everything that you could be doing wrong, thinking it's going to be my mission to just flip drugs, make money, live this easy life. And God just said, nope. Think again. You're going to be mine. And within a couple weeks, you're going to be preaching the Bible to people. If you would have told me when I went out that night, I would have told you to your face, you were crazy. But God was big enough to knock me off my high horse. Or you were getting a little bit too big for your britches. So God in His mercy came in and He knocked you down a peg or two. I, for one, am grateful that God loves me so much that He time and time again has knocked me off of my high horse. I always believed that God was out there, but I also wanted to be in the role of God in my own life. And God was loving enough to show me there's only room on the throne for one, and it's not you. And God in His grace showed me that Eric Lawyer was not king over his own life. Are you grateful for that today? You see, I had a big plan for my life. And then after I carried out that big plan for my life and did all the fun things that I was going to do, then I was going to talk about giving my life to God. Well, guess what my plan almost did? My plan almost killed me. That's where my best thinking got me. And God had to show me that his plan was so much greater than any plan that I could ever devise for my life. And unfortunately, it's not just like you learn this lesson at salvation. And then you never have to relearn it again. How many of you have had to get knocked off your high horse more than once? How many of you are grateful that God is still in the business of knocking people off their high horses? And I guarantee you, because I've never sat in a crowd of people that was bigger than like four, where one was not just a giant me monster. And it was, ah, me, 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 I, me, my, me, my, me, I, I, I. And I'm so grateful that there are some me monsters here today that need to be knocked off your high horse. So either you've come here and you haven't met Jesus yet and you think you have this whole thing figured out. And if that's you, I pray that Christ and his love pursues you in the same loving way that he pursued Paul, even though Paul was doing nothing loving in his way that he was pursuing Christ, and in his infinite love, mercy, and grace, knocks you off your high horse. But there are very many Christians who could use being knocked off their horse. There are a lot of people that could use the reminder, who do you think you are? If the majority of your sentences start with the trinity of stupidity, I, me, and my, you might need to get knocked off your high horse. Who do you think you are? You, guess who you are? At best, you are a sinner saved by grace, just like the rest of us. So get off the high horse and get at the foot of the cross where we're humbled and where we belong, where we say, Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, 
I cling. This text also points out another important reality. None of us were looking for God. Saul was like Jonah. He couldn't have been running the opposite way any harder than you could in this passage. He couldn't be running the opposite way any faster, but the faster Saul ran, the faster God pursued. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? So I hear a lot of stories that people talk about, I was looking for God through this and this, and then I opened a fortune cookie, and then I found him. No, you didn't. God was never lost. You were. And in the middle of being lost, when you were without hope, our loving and gracious Savior came and found you, even though you didn't know that you needed anybody to be looking for you. That's the Christian gospel. Your conversion was just like Saul's. You may not have been doing the same things that Saul was doing, but you were living for you, with you, firmly seated on the throne of your life. And you were firmly planted on the throne of your heart. And God chased you down in the midst of that rebellion, and he saved you, which should lead us to two conclusions. The first being, how great is our God? Like, if you hear that message and don't come to that conclusion, check your pulse and see whether you've really believed in the gospel. The message was, I was running as fast as I could, running towards this hellbound grace, and God in his grace ran faster and enveloped me in his love. And he grabbed a hold and said, that's not you anymore. You are now my child. So you have to come to the conclusion when you hear that. How great is our God? But number two that you should come to is that no one is hard to save. Look, God did all the work. I want you to especially hear this this morning. If you're here and you have that family member and you're like, man, they couldn't get saved if Jesus himself came and knocked on their door and preached the gospel to them. If that's you and you're here today, I want you to consider the illogicality of your thought and the pride of how great you think you must be that you are so easy to save and God couldn't save them. God did all the work. Saul was not too difficult to save. As messed up as my life was, I was not too difficult to save. We had five people get signed up to get baptized. We're going to baptize two today. We're going to baptize another three next month. But guess what? Out of those three children who got saved that we're going to baptize and those two adults that got saved, tell me who the hardest one was for Jesus to save. What's the right answer? None of them. Yeah. If you, none of them. It was the same blood, the same cross. It was the salvation for each of them because we all come the same way, humbly on our knees before an old rugged cross, confessing that we cannot self-atone for our sin any longer, but we need to embrace the Jesus who has and at that cross, it's not about what you have done, but it's about what Christ has already completed. So that person in your life that you've given up hope on, read the rest of this passage. They're not outside of the reach of God. When we truly believe that it's all by the grace of God, 
then we truly embrace the fact that the good person is no easier to save than the scoundrel, and the scoundrel is no harder to save than the good person in your life. If you want to read about the only unlikely person in this passage, let's check out verses 10 through 19, and that's what we'll close with, and then we're going to dunk some people in the name of Jesus. Now, there was at the table of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight into the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision that a man named Ananias shall come and lay his hands on him that he might regain sight. But Ananias answered the same way every one of you would. Lord, I've heard about this guy. He's nuts. I've learned about how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. I've heard about the authority, all of that worldly authority that he has, and all of our liberties that are going to be taken away by these horrible candidates from the chief priests to blind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I love that, Brother Saul, this guy who is just his mortal enemy. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he was baptized, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, and he was baptized and taking food, and he was strengthened. So if there was anybody who was really unlikely in this story, it was Ananias. And guess what? Ananias knew it too. And I want to give you three quick lessons that we should learn. We looked at evangelism last week. I want to give you three quick lessons that we should learn from the life of Ananias. First of all, Ananias' attitude was, who, me, Lord? As opposed to, I am pretty awesome, aren't I? If there ever was a choice vessel that you should use, I should be that choice vessel. There's none of that. He's just like, what? God, you're going to use me for this? Who am I to be used in such a way? Number two is it seems impossible. His answer to him is, you know, that guy? What he's saying is, this is something I can't do. And that's what it means every time you're involved in a spiritual transaction. You can't do this in your own flesh. But his ultimate answer is, Lord, commanded it, and I'm willing if you go with me. And you know what the awesome thing is about this passage? And we're going to go over this more next week. I'm going to go back into the passage, but I really wanted to highlight the stuff that hits on baptism this week. Saul never really lost his sense of unworthiness. I mean, certainly throughout his epistles, it keeps reminding people that he is the least most of the apostles. Or he takes other titles and he calls himself things like the chief most of all sinners. Or I love the one that he says in 1 Timothy when he talks about why God saved him. He said, God saved me so that in me he might show that he is a perfect example of patience to those who would believe. How's that for humbling about realizing about yourself? Look, there's one reason that God saved me. 
because it takes infinite patience to deal with me. So God must have saved me so that he could show you what a patient God he is as he continues to deal with this unpatient knucklehead. That's one of my absolute favorites or my personal favorite when he recounts his story. And he's talking about how Jesus appeared to all the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. And then he gets to his story in verse 8. And he says, and then last of all, he appeared to me as the one untimely born, not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. So therefore, I worked harder, but not I, but the grace of God that is in me. I know that because I have it tattooed down this arm because I never wanted to forget those words. He didn't live with this Eeyore sense of, woe is me, I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle. That's not what the emphasis was in the passage. The passage is more a flat-out dependence upon the radical and undeserved grace of God. He's like, wow, it's by grace and grace alone that I am what I am. And his grace toward me will not prove vain because I'm in love with grace. How many of you here today are in love with grace? And I am a self-proclaimed grace junkie. I can't get enough of it. How many of you are here and you are just so thankful? How many of you took time today to thank him? God, thank you that you are a God of grace and that your grace will not prove vain, then it's not, about your, it's not about my unworthiness. It's about your worthiness on my behalf. It's about your worthiness, Lord, not mine. And Jesus passed the test, the hardest test ever, so he could take away your unworthiness and give you his worthiness in its place. And that's what we're going to celebrate at baptism. It's a picture of your unworthiness going under that water and not rising again. Just like when Christ died on the cross and said it was finished, your sin did not rise again, but it stayed in that dead body on the cross and it didn't rise with him when he punked death and came out of the tomb and he was victorious over death and sin and that's what's pictured in baptism when you come up out of the water it's celebrating he is alive and I live in him because of grace that is why we celebrate baptism because you'll never be worthy but you don't have to because Christ was on your behalf so that we could say with Paul by the grace of God I am what I am look each of you who have embraced the gospel is a portrait of grace. From the youngest who's here, who's embraced the gospel, you are a portrait of grace. When I read this story, I can't help but think, um, some of you guys know that uh, I'm good friends with David Berkowitz, the, the son of Sam, serial killer, the guy that did the stuff that all those famous movies came out about. That guy accepted Christ in 1979. I know you love being put on the spot, so you're enjoying this right now, what I'm doing to you. So, and I could keep doing this all day if you like. So, in 1979, that man accepted Jesus, and guess what? He's the same portrait of grace as my eight year old, well, now nine year old Elijah, who accepted Christ. He's the same portrait of grace as little Katie that we're about 
to baptize. He's the same portrait of grace as Glenn who we're about to baptize. By the grace of God, you are what you are. It's the same cross, the same gospel that saved each of you. And by the grace of God, you are what you are. And each of these stories, this is what we'll close with, move forward the advancement of the church. Just like each of these stories... Just like each of these stories, the next stories that you're going to see also move forward the mission of the church. Look, who knows what these folks are capable of in Christ? We're all just as worthy or likely, which means that we're not worthy. We've just embraced that Christ is the only one that is worthy. And we have His worthiness to call our own. We are, all un, we are all the same miracles here. We are all unbelievable who have embraced, embraced Christ. We are all equally miraculous that God could save us. Each of us are critical for moving forward the mission of the church. Get that. I want to ask you a question before we end. Who is more responsible for seeing the world evangelized? This Ananias, who we only know reached one person for the gospel. Maybe he reached many, I don't know. But the Bible only recounts him reaching once. Or the Apostle Paul, who had three famous missionary journeys and went and reached the whole known world. Who is more important than the story, to the story of God? I want to tell you that you have no Paul if it wasn't for Ananias. And his name is barely a footnote in the story and each of you will move forward the church in a different way who know Jesus sometimes it's through gifts sometimes celebration sometimes like pain like God said of Paul I'll show him how much pain he must suffer for my name's sake because in that he had a thorn that he was used to keep him humble that we read about in 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 but just like the passage ends with Paul was baptized we're going to celebrate the gospel through baptism, and it's by the grace of God you are what you are. So I'm going to ask the baptizees to go ahead in and, and, and get changed. Um, I'm going to explain to you the two ordinances, baptism and communion. And in a moment, I'm going to call the communion servers forward. I've written out an explanation of baptism and communion that'll take about two minutes to explain. Before Jesus left the earth, he left us with these two precious items that we know as ordinances. Depending on what kind of tradition you grow up in, you might know them as sacraments. But whatever we choose, the historical term of use of ordinance, we choose that one because of what it means. An ordinance is a symbol of the gospel that Christ ordered his church to do so that we continually have what he's done as a remembrance or a picture of what he's done for us at the cross. And the two ordinances Christ left us with are communion and baptism, which we are about to celebrate both. And that's right. I said celebrate. I want to hear you guys tear the roof off this place when we dunk these people. We believe that the ordinance are a celebration for those who are already believers in the good news of Jesus. Otherwise, it's just an empty ritual. So if you haven't put your faith in him, we would ask that you abstain, not because we want 
you to not be involved just because we don't want you taking an empty ritual. So communion is an ordinance that helps us to picture his body and his blood. And he said to do this regularly in remembrance of him. And that's why we do it each week because it gives us an opportunity to have a multi-sensory taste of the gospel and what Jesus has done. And baptism, to tie the two together, just like the body represents the sinless life of Jesus and how it was broken for us, the water explains his sinless life, how he paid the price for the sin on the cross. And when his body was broken, which we celebrate in communion, just like it was buried in the tomb, which we celebrate in baptism, representing his atoning death and our death to self. And the juice represents the blood that was shed, cleansing us from our sin and also representing the cleansing waters of baptism. So I'm going to ask if the communion servers would come forward and serve as we go and prepare to do the baptism. the river I am going bringing sins I cannot bear come and cleanse me come forgive me Lord I need to meet you these waters healing mercy flows with freedom from despair and I am going to that river Lord I need to meet you Precious Jesus, I am ready to surrender every care. Take my hand now, lead me closer, cause Lord I need to meet you there. join us in the river come find life beyond compare he is calling he is waiting Jesus longs to meet you Precious Jesus, I am ready to surrender every care. Take my hand now, lead me closer. Lord, I need to meet you there.
precious Jesus, I am ready to surrender every care. Take my head now, lead me closer, cause Lord I need to meet you there. Take my hand now, lead me closer, cause Lord I need to meet you there. says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may drink the cup. For as often as you drink this bread and eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now we also get to proclaim his death and resurrection as we get to witness baptisms. So, before we baptize, we've got to do a little practice here in the sanctuary. We tried this on Easter, and I want to see if you guys can get it nailed down this time. So what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate together. You guys participate along with the celebration, and then right after the baptism, we're going to rise together, and we're going to sing triumphantly and tear the roof off this sucker. So I hope you guys are all about that. But from this side of the room, from this patch elder, over. After we do the baptism, and I bring up the baptizee, and I say that we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you guys are going to say, buried with Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And then you guys right after are going to say, raised to walk in newness of life. Buried with Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Raised to walk in newness of life. So let's take my imaginary person. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Did, did you guys hear me use the word celebrate about 2,000 times in that message? Because that was the least celebratory thing I've ever heard. So we're going to do this again. We baptize this person. Buried with Christ. The forget on for the forgiveness of sin. Let's hit this side. Buried with Christ for the forgiveness of sin. All right. Hopefully they'll catch some of what you got. So come on down, Glenn. Let's hear it for Glenn. Trusted in Christ 
and Him alone for your salvation, believing in His death to be the only true satisfaction for your sin, believing that He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death, believing that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through Him. Yes, I have. Do you trust as Jesus as both your Savior and your Lord and desire to live for Him and only Him all the days of your life? Yes, I do. you have anything that you would like to share? Yes. I, I've been a pretty lousy person for the past 10 or 12 years. And uh, about a month ago, I, I just got into a rage and was, at the end, I was, I was yelling at the devil. And that, and that, that little moment at the end, Christ came into me has been, and has just been working his, his miracles with me for the past month. And that's why I'm here. So reminder, I'm going to baptize him, beg the Christ for the forgiveness of sin, raised to walk in newness of life, but not until I point. So upon your public profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. as both Lord and Savior and declare to live for Him and only Him all the days of your life? Yes. As we are baptized as the symbol of being baptized into His death, buried into His resurrection, but also symbolizing being baptized into His body. So do you have anything that you want to say before we baptize you? No. <laughs> well, upon your public profession of faith and the good news of Jesus Christ, I baptize you, Katie, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in the baptism, raised to walk with newness of life. Alright, let us pray for these saints. Jesus, thank you so much for the celebration of baptism and of your good news. And it's in Jesus' triumphant name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we worship together to close this service. 